You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. Well, it is a privilege to be opening God's Word together with you. We're back in Matthew 5. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we are going to finish the rest of chapter 5 today. So we've been doing some short passages. This one's a bit longer. Um, I'm going to read it for you. It's going to be up on the screen. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. These are the words of Jesus. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, his wife must give her... Sorry, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all either by heaven because it's God's throne or by the earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go, to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, I want to start out by asking... I guess what might be a controversial question to, to some, and it's, we, we talked about this a little, a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' words on being salt and light. Um, there's something about us Christians, us followers of Jesus that makes us different, that makes us special, or at least that's how it's meant to be. So here now is the question, what is it? 
What is it that makes you, as a Christian, special? More specifically, what is special about you personally? What's the thing that sets you apart from people who would not identify as Christians? What is it that makes you that little morsel of salty flavor in the bland surroundings or that flickering candle in a dark room? What, what is it about you? The main purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been looking at now for these three weeks, is to describe the character, the attitudes, and the behavior of a Christian, of a follower of King Jesus, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all through the sermon, Jesus makes the assumption that as a Christian, if you think and live and feel as a Christian ought to, that you're going to be different. You're going to stand out in some way in the world, that you'll be recognized. Last week, the very last verse we finished on was verse 20 of chapter 5, where Jesus said this. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So then maybe that's the key. Here's what you need to do. You need to look at the, the best person you know, the holiest person you know, the most religious person you can think of, and you need to be just a little bit better. Is that the key? Because if it was, that wouldn't be good news. I mean, some of us look at that and think, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's possible. Nobody's been able to do it before, but maybe, maybe I can. Maybe we can, because we're just a bit nicer than average. Of course, that's not what Jesus meant at all, even though we sometimes act like he, it is what he meant. We, we can focus on these sort of outward markers of what it means to be a Christian. So we talk a certain way. We avoid certain people. We avoid certain words. We shop at certain places. We vote for certain parties. Um, we don't rock the boat at work. Um, we make sure that our kids... Uh, are the same. They, don't, they do their best at school so that they don't grow up to rock the boat. We smile and we wave at our neighbors. Um, we've got stuff that we're dealing with, you know, but, and maybe there's one or two other people in our lives that know us well. But to the watching world, we just try to be good citizens. We just try to be nice people. Model colleagues, model parents, model students, even model church members. But you see, that's not what Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes way, way, way beyond all of that. Because when we do that, when we think that being a Christian is just being nice or being a model citizen, that what we communicate, even if we don't mean to, is that being a Christian is really about being the best human you could possibly be. There's a lot of people that think that, a lot of people that go to church that think that, you know, just going to church and being generous and be, not being mean, that's basically what it means to follow Jesus. But then we come to the words here, particularly the last verse that I just read, chapter 5, and we get really discouraged because here's what he says. He says, being Christian isn't really about being the best version of yourself. He says, be perfect. Perfect, therefore, not by your standard, not by your definition, but be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be just like God. That's the goal. Now, before we get to the case studies of what this perfection sort of looks like in real life, um, we, we need to do, or I want to do, just a little bit of a deep dive 
on how Christians have dealt with this sort of historically. There's two types of responses to this question of what does it mean for a Christian to be perfect? Um, what ought we to do? How ought we to live? Two kinds of responses that come up from time to time. On one side, there's what sometimes can be called Christian perfectionism. Christian perfectionism. And I'm simplifying here. Christian perfectionism is the view that you can achieve a state of sinlessness or almost sinlessness in this life. The Holy Spirit is helping you climb right now the ladder of holiness. And when you get to that very top rung, that's perfection. And you've made it. And you just kind of hang out there and wait until, you, until Jesus comes back or until you die. Um, and you feel pretty good about yourself. Um, and the good thing about this view is that it does take holiness, obedience, seriously. And we need to, because the Bible tells us, we, we need to actively engage, do battle against our flesh and against sin. It's biblical. But what's not good about this view is the Bible seems to contradict it at certain points, such as in 1 John 1, 8, where he says, if anyone thinks that he's without sin or says that he's without sin, that he is a liar and the truth of God is not in him. That's a problem for Christian perfectionism. We will all continue to wrestle with sin until Jesus comes back. We will not achieve a state of sinlessness in this life. We will grow. We will mature. We will struggle less with certain sins as we go. And that's not to admit failure, though. See, it's actually necessary for us to have relationship with God. And here's why. Because if you start to convince yourself that you have arrived at that top ladder of perfection, you stop trusting and hoping in God to make you new. You stop appreciating the newness of God's mercy every morning you get out of bed because you don't need it anymore. Or at least that's what you, you think. Christian perfectionism will never lead a person to be poor in spirit rather proud in spirit. So we should reject it. So now the second kind of response to this, Christian perfectionism, is kind of the opposite. Sometimes it's called antinomianism. Antinomianism just comes from the Latin word that means anti-law. And this is the view that because Christians are saved by grace, which is biblical, and not by law, also biblical, that the law does not serve any purpose anymore. Just chuck it out. We don't need it. We don't need the law. We're under grace. We looked at this last week. Um, the Old Testament laws, including the Ten Commandments, they don't save us. And so, therefore, we conclude they don't help us at all. What we need to do is just focus on Jesus and focus on his grace. And somewhat automatically, over time, we'll become more like him. The thing is, Jesus rejected this view. Again, we saw this last week. He, along with the apostles, he expected that Christians would know the commands hear the commands, do the commands. He expected this. And, they were, and so what he does here, and we're going to see this in the examples, when he brings up these, all these commands from the Old Testament, do not kill, do not commit adultery, he doesn't chuck them out. What's he do? He says, these aren't going away. There's a problem is that some of you have interpreted these things wrong. And he's going to give the correct interpretation. He's going to fulfill them and fill them with, with right meaning. Obeying commands does not save you. However, as a child of God who has already been saved, 
There is a close connection between obedience to the commands and fellowship or closeness with God. If you want close fellowship with God, you obey the commands. If you obey the commands, you have close fellowship with God. We see that all through the New Testament. If you, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? you obey my commands. Antinomianism in practice leads only to a kind of spiritual laziness that can justify or minimize sin, which again is unbiblical and deadly. So go back to verse 48 for a minute where he says this. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want you to just track with me here. Christian perfectionism, antinomianism, they make what they say opposite things, but they actually have one thing in common. And that is their understanding of what it means to be perfect. So in that view, there is out there somewhere in the universe this ideal thing or this ideal state called perfection. And we must somehow travel to that state. Jesus is the only one that got there. Jesus became per like he lived a perfect life. He found perfection. And so maybe we can get there with Jesus. But Jesus says something very different here. I want you to look closely at his words. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, particularly the last five words. Your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you translate that into a mass equation, the word is is an equal sign. Your heavenly Father equals perfect. See, perfect is not an abstract ideal set of rules, philosophy. Perfect is a person. Perfect is your heavenly father. And so when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's not saying, he's in a stern voice, work really hard until you get perfect. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Come to your father. His arms are open. Cling to him for all the days of your life, and you will be satisfied. That's what he's saying. And so when we, we read the examples, and we're going to go back now and look at the, the six examples of just daily life stuff he's talking about, have that there in the back of your mind. All of these things, this is not, this is not an extra weight that somebody's putting into the bag that you're carrying so that every single one, oh, don't anger, not just anger, but don't say bad things, don't lust, don't look at a woman lust, and we just get heavier and heavier and heavier. No, every single one of these is an invitation to come into the arms of your Father who loves you. Every one of you Everyone, me included, we can walk out of this room today and we can try really hard with all of our strength to work hard for God. You can try to be less angry. You can try to forgive the people who have hurt you. You can try to stop lusting. You can grit your teeth and do something nice for your spouse, even say a prayer or two for your boss. That is the well-worn path of self-made religion but hear the invitation of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Your Father who loves you so much, more than you will ever know, sent his Son, not just to be an example for you, but to atone for your sins, to make it possible for you to receive the Holy Spirit and the power that you need to come into his presence, to receive his perfection, and then live it out.
perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace. His will, listen, is not to make you outwardly nice. His will for you is to make you inwardly new. There's such a big chasm between those two things. So come to him and be satisfied this morning. Now, I, I could just end it right there. But I, but I, don't, I do want to go back into these six examples that Jesus gives because I think they're really helpful for us. And I want you to see, I've got a slide up on the screen. And, and I'm not going to go into this. Well, I'll probably talk about it more. But what, what you're going to see in all of these examples is that perfection, obedience, the way of Christ begins in the heart it begins with a new heart, a heart that is so satisfied in God more than anything else that your, all of your desires, the things you want, and all of your actions, the things you do, flow out of that satisfied heart. That's where change starts. That's where a life of obedience starts, with a satisfied heart, a new heart, a real relationship with your heavenly father. So we're going to dive into these examples that Jesus gives. Um, the first one, example number one is anger. So go all the way back to verse 21. It's where he starts these case studies in perfection or righteousness. Each one of these examples starts with this little phrase. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. And then he quotes a bit of the law of the Old Testament. Now, remember, he's, already, he's not getting rid of the law. He's going to fulfill it. So when he, he's not saying, you've heard that it was said X. Well, forget about X. I'm giving you Y. Some of us kind of hear it that way, but that's not what he's saying at all. He never, ever says that the Bible itself is wrong. What he does is he points out the way that the Bible teachers of that day had used the Bible wrongly. So he quotes number six here of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. And then he adds on the summary of the rest of the law. It says that anyone who murders will be judged. And then he says this, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then he goes on to talk about those who insult and those who, uh, you know, call names. Uh, he takes the sixth commandment, God's word, which is true. He doesn't throw it out. He actually expands the scope of it. He helps us to understand what God meant when he said, do not murder. He's not simply talking about pulling the trigger of a gun because pulling the trigger of a gun and murdering someone is the last stop on the anger train. And what Jesus is trying to tell us here is that if you're, when your heart is satisfied in him, you won't get on the anger train to begin with. So you gotta, if you want to deal with murder, you've got to start all the way back at the beginning where we start to nurse a grudge against someone, when we start to think ourselves better than someone else, when we start to see another person as the thing or the thing that's in the way of what I want. That's where murder begins. It begins in the heart. And Jesus here gives us the right use of the law. It's not just a, li a line in the sand between acceptable and unacceptable behavior, you know, and how close can I get to that line without crossing over? That's not what Jesus is doing at all. He's saying you need to have a heart that loves obedience, that loves mercy. The law is meant to expose sin in our hearts and then drive us to dependence on God so that he would reshape our hearts in his image. I don't know if any of you have ever been through a catechism before. 
A catechism is sort of a list of questions and answers that helps us learn the truths of the Bible in a summary form. It can be a helpful tool for your own growth. Um, there's one that came out a few years ago called the New City Catechism. A few of you have probably gone through it. And one of the questions in the New City Catechism is about, well, a few of the questions are about the Ten Commandments. And then they give the sort of the question of what does the sixth commandment, for example, uh, forbid? Or what, what does it require? And the answer they give is this. this. The sixth commandment is do not murder or do not kill. Here's what it says. It says the sixth commandment requires that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. You see, that's a lot more than just don't pull a trigger. There's a heart of love that is not just implied but required by the sixth commandment. And man, wouldn't the world or even our churches be, our family, our homes be different if we lived like that? If we, you know, we have to start at the heart. There's only one force in the universe that's strong enough to change a hard heart. And we all struggle and wrestle with hard hearts. And that's God. It's the gospel of grace. In case you need more evidence that this is what he's on about in this book, look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus here says, he says, just gives an example. He says, if you're coming to church, right? The temple, but for our sake, we'll say church. So you're going to a religious gathering and you're going to make an offering. In that, in that time, it was a sacrifice. Well, let's say what we do every week, we take communion to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. That's kind of the equivalent for us. So you're going to church on a Sunday to take communion and thereby every time you're acknowledging that your sins are forgiven and you're asking God to forgive your sins again. And in that moment, you remember that you, someone has a grievance against you. You've hurt them, offended someone, maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to leave. You need to get in your car and you need to, or get on the phone and you need to make it right with that person. You need to attempt to be reconciled. Now, it doesn't always happen straight away, but you need to make a good faith attempt to be reconciled with that person who you've hurt, even if it was unintentional. And, and Paul says this in Romans 13, verse 10. He says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Too many of us think that we can come to church and raise our hands and worship and pray and take communion and serve on a roster and yet harbor hate and annoyance and bitterness towards another person. That is not acceptable worship. If we read the New Testament, we have to deal with those things. We have to walk and live in love. You know, if, if there's anything that makes us unspecial in the world, that makes us look like everyone else around us, and, it, and sometimes quite offensive to other people, is to be a religious pretender. And, and the biggest way to be a religious pretender is to, to not love people, to be a church-going bully. And, and this is hard stuff, guys, because we've all been there. Like, we, we all need help. All of the, these words should be convicting all of us, and we say, man, if my heart was satisfied in God, then there would be no room. I can't cling to him and to bitterness and rage at the same time. Shouldn't push us into despair as children of God, but deeper 
into the arms of the Father. The more we understand his love and grace and experience it, the easier it is to let go of rage and bitterness, to forgive, to take steps toward reconciliation, even when full restoration with another person isn't possible. All right, I'm going to move a bit quicker. The second example he gives, sexuality. Doesn't get easier. Jesus again quotes the commandments. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. And that's, again, easy for us to go, well, I've ticked that box. haven't done that. Jesus says, well, let me, let me say something else to you. He says, what I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a massive statement, Jesus, because on the one hand, most of us church-going folks, hand on heart, can say, I've never committed adultery, but we're not off the hook because just like murder, having sex with a person you're not married to is the last stop on the lust train. His will for you is that you never get on the train in the first place. So let me point out what Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say, don't look at a woman ever. He doesn't say, you know, don't look at a man ever. If you're in this room and you're older than about 12, you've probably at some stage looked at and been attracted to a person you're not married to. Guessing you probably wouldn't be married if that wasn't true of you. So don't turn this into another wooden regulation. Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman or man specifically with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So this, of course, applies to consuming pornography, one of the biggest scourges of our age and even in the church. Um, you continue in this sin. You don't take active steps to kill this sin. You will die. That's what Paul says in Romans eight thirteen. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And now comes one of the most shocking of all of Jesus' teachings here in the sermon. He says, if your right eye or your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off or risk hell. What's he saying? There are people in the history of the church who have taken these words quite literally and actually maimed themselves. It's not what he's saying, if, just in case you were worried. Um, but then there are others who, think, who take these words and make them mean the opposite of what he says. Well, because Jesus, okay, if I have an issue with lust, and I, I cut out my right eye. Well, I've still got my left eye, so the problem's still there. So what you're really saying, Jesus, is all this external stuff doesn't matter. All this external stuff doesn't matter. Um, but that's not what he meant. He is taking sin incredibly seriously. He's doing the same thing that Paul does in Romans 8. He says, you need to take active steps to put yourself out of harm's way, to put yourself out of temptation. Otherwise, your sin will kill you. Do not be deceived, thinking that you're stronger than you are. You need to cast yourself on the mercy and the love of God for your soul every single day. And that involves going to battle with sin. We're in this together, friends. But fervent hearts go to battle against sin. All right, next example he tackles is divorce. I'm not going to go on to this in detail because I preached on this last year when we came across this very similar teaching in Mark 10. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 24, a man wants to divorce his wife must give her a written certificate or a written notice. This was done for the wife's protection, so he couldn't just throw her out on the street. Um, she could, if she had that paper in hand, go and be remarried and not end up economically um, destitute. Jesus here, though, goes back to the original intent of the law because, of course, this is what we do. We see that 
And people saw that as a loophole. Well, I can get divorced for any reason I want. I don't have to be reconciled. I don't have to work on my marriage because I can just write out a piece of paper and it's done. I can start over. But Jesus says, no, I want you to see the original intent of the law, that marriage is sacred. It's to keep husbands and wives from mistreating each other. It's not a loophole. He says to the man, he says, if you're considering divorce, it was almost always initiated by the man back in the day, um, know that you will greatly, physically, spiritually harm your wife, almost forcing her to marry someone else just to survive. And because the marriage covenant is meant to be permanent, this is equal to adultery in the eyes of God. Now, he gives the exception here for sexual immorality, and Paul gives another exception for abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7, and we won't dive into those here. Uh, but hear me, if your marriage is in trouble this morning, please come find me or, or talk to someone. Don't suffer alone. Man, th that's kind of the, one of the harder things you deal with as a pastor and a friend is to find out years down the track, years too late, that couples have been suffering and not reached out for help. Man, we've got to humble ourselves and say, you know, we need each other because it's hard. Marriage is hard. Relationships are hard. Love is hard. But that's why we have each other, and that's why we have Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus to help us persevere. Next example is a bit harder to unpack. This is truth-telling. I just want to underline the point at the end where Jesus says, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Um, the reason is because this reflects the heart of God. God's word never fails. It doesn't change with time or whether he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's always the same. Thus, if we have a pure heart that's satisfied in God, our yes is yes, our no is no. We are able to speak the truth in love. That's why you don't need to make an oath, okay? Just in regular relationships. I'm not talking about when you go to court. You know, there's reasons why when you go to court, you have to put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth. At least you do in America. I don't know if you do that here. Anyway, you've seen it in the movies. Um, you do that because the idea is, well, if you put your hand on and you swear by the Bible, then you're, you're going to be, if you have any kind of fear of God in you, then you're not going to lie because then you're coming under the judgment of God. That's why they do oaths in public life. But Jesus is talking about just an everyday relationship, everyday conversation. People shouldn't have to make you sign a stat deck every time you make a promise to them. They should just be able to trust your word because they know you and they know that you are for them, that you have a heart of love, that you have a heart that can speak the truth in love, even if it's tough. You don't have to be under oath to be a friend to someone. You can speak the truth in love. You can speak the truth even to an enemy. All right. Next one, number five, paybacks. Paybacks, we love paybacks, sometimes, you know. But um, in this one, Jesus quotes familiar words, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I didn't, like, it took me a while to actually realize that was in the Bible, because I think I grew up hearing the other, like, the sort of the, the rejection of that, you know, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And, and I didn't realize that was actually in the Bible, but it is. It's, it's in the Bible. And the reason it's there, it's uh, sometimes called the reciprocal justice, or in Latin, the lex talionis. Um, Moses, it's in the law of Moses. He put it in there to keep violence from escalating. So let's say um, you borrow something from me. So you borrowed one of my uh, tools or something, and then you, you lost it. 
And then in retaliation, I come over and steal your car. So when Jesus, when the, it was in the law of Moses, an eye for an eye, it was to prevent that. It was to prevent this escalation of retaliation. It was to keep it, you know, on the level. But of course then, people misuse that. People say, well, an eye for an eye. Well, if you, they, they're, then there's no room for mercy. If you break something of mine, even by accident, then I must break something of yours. But there's never some sort of iron, there must be a punishment. There's always room for mercy. God himself is a God of mercy. He never rules it out. He's always full of love and compassion, eager to forgive. Mercy always triumphs over judgment in the heart of God. That's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh and Jesus to the cross. We already saw this in the Beatitudes. The blessed life means loving mercy. The merciful will be shown mercy. And here he replies it to a behavior. Don't resist an evildoer. Turn the other cheek. Another famous line of Jesus. Go beyond what's expected in generosity. And remember, these things spring from a heart that's satisfied in God, that's received mercy. One of the most jarring things to witness in myself and in in Christians is you know, our entire faith is built on the, the, the new, fresh mercies of God every single day. The mercies of God poured out on, through the cross. And here I am as a Christian, and I'm always banging on about my rights, what I deserve. I'm quick to accuse in public. How does the world ever, how will they ever see the merciful heart of God if the main thing I care about is my rights and not being mistreated? And we need that now. Man, in times when hostilities are heating up again around the globe, when evil dictators rise up to persecute and oppress, you know, we're thankful for governments and armies that are set aside for the legitimate resistance and self-defense. This is sometimes used wrongly to say, well, you're never allowed to defend yourself. That's not, I don't believe that's what Jesus is arguing for because other places, Romans 13, he gives us armies and, and courts and police to protect the weak and vulnerable. What he's saying here, though, is that there's something, there's a force in the world that's much more powerful than bullets. It's men and women worshiping in subway stations and praying in public parks for peace. See, dictators of the world don't understand the foolishness of the cross. We pray one day that they will, but until then... God sends men and women with compassionate hearts into the world to resist evil with good. Very last example Jesus given this section, it's all about love, not just for the people up close to you, but for enemies. And here's where he gets real. He says, you do this, that is when you are living as children of God. Because if you stop short of this, you only love and you only hang out with the people who like you and who compliment your hair. And you don't go and cross the room to deal with that person who never asks you how you're going, who always just takes and never gives. If you don't do that, he says, how are you different to anybody else? How are you special in that sense? How are you salt and light if you can't love hard people? The point Jesus is making here is that to be perfect to live out that satisfied heart in the Father's love, 
is going to make you stand out. It's going to make you do things uncomfortable that are hard, but things will make you salty and bright. Because it's easy to love people who love you back. It's hard to love people who stab you in the back. Human beings, just by being human, can smile and wave at their neighbors. Christians, Christians serve and pray for their tormentors. I said that before, I, I gave the conclusion and application up front, but let me go back as we close. I don't know if I read this exact phrasing, so I'll read it now. The goal of the Christian life is for your heart to be so satisfied in the Father's love for you, in the mercy of Jesus, in the indwelling of the Spirit. You're, you're so satisfied in God that now all of your desires, the things you want, and your attitudes and your actions, the things you do, flow from this satisfied joy in him. Let me reverse the order for a minute. How, how is it that you can make a difference for Jesus in the world? See, before you can make a difference, you have to be different. And before you are different, your desires, the stuff you want, has to be different. And for your desires to be different, you need a heart that is pure, a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, which you cannot do on your own. And because you can't do it on your own, you won't get the glory for it. He will. Remember, let your good works, your good works, shine. Good works that you can't do on your own flow out of a heart that he has given, a new heart that he's given you. That's why your good works will lead others to glorify not you, not your pedigree, not your church, but your father. To be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect is not living for top marks. It's living in such a way to make Jesus the one whose life you're imitating look so incredibly big and great. So that just like when he hung on the cross in your place, and one of his enemies who was there on that day, seeing it unfold in real time, one of the very men who nailed him there looked up, saw the way that his arms were outstretched, and you know what he said? He said, surely, surely this is the Son of God. He was blind until that moment. And then he recognized him. See, other people might look at your life, your whole life. They don't see it. They don't see how you're different. They don't see how you're special. They don't see the work of God in you until, until you suffer, until you love your enemies, until you forgive the unforgivable. And then at that moment, may you have the joy of seeing someone look at your life and say, surely, surely you've been with Jesus. Surely you belong to him. Because he looks, she looks so much like her father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you again that you never change, that your word never changes, that we can come to you and be satisfied every day. Lord, help our hearts to be satisfied in you, so satisfied in you that our, that our thoughts, that our actions flow out of that joy and that we can have the joy of seeing other men and women, people in our lives, our kids, our neighbors, 
see the way that you've changed us, see our joy in you, and they would give glory to their Father in heaven. Remind us of that again as we come to the communion table today, of your mercy and love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.